Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have hitherto been overlooked. So we're going to investigate, research and explore them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Pryor. And I am Stephen Higgins. Looks like we've got a jam-packed episode this time around. Stephen, you've been putting a lot of work into your research. What have you come up with this time? Absolutely, Michael. It's, the whole episode is packed full of interesting things. But I started off looking at a, a subject that was close to my heart. I was, as you know, I've got a, an interest in cricket. And I was, my interest was, was taken with the, the synthetic broadcasts back in the 1930s. And I, I wanted to look into a, a little-known aspect of those synthetic broadcasts that were derived from the cricket broadcasts, but they expanded into other sports. At the time, back in the 30s, there was a, a world chess championship taking place in, in Prague and decided that it was too expensive to send the, the ABC, renowned ABC commentator Robin Palloon to, uh, to the hotel in Prague where the matches were to take place. So they, they needed to come up with a different approach and they, they used the synthetic bro- cricket broadcasts as a template. The actual chess moves were telegraphed from Prague to the ABC studios in Sydney. So, for instance, um, King's Rook to King's Pawn 9 or whatever it is. And Palloon sort of used his, his sporting background to give a fascinating look into the world of top-flight chess. He, he had a, he, Palloon was known for his low-key barely audible commentary, which really suited chess commentary. Whilst they're in the studio, a young technician called Kevin Taunt appropriated the cricket broadcast technique of using sound effects to give the atmosphere of the event. So to create the sound of a wooden chess piece being moved across a board and placed softly onto the board, Todd came up with the idea of using a piece of wood with felt glued to the base, which he then placed softly onto a piece of wood, not unlike the chess board that was being used in the actual game. And, and so realistic was the sound produced that listeners were at first shocked to find out that the sound had been produced synthetically and was not the actual sound of the actual chess pieces being placed onto the actual board by the actual chess masters. It became incredibly popular. They repeated the success of this method of broadcasting with the recreation of the running of the 1936 Melbourne Cup, where real horses were used to recreate the sound of the horses. It was recorded at the Flemington Racetrack, where the Melbourne Cup is run every year, in order to provide that little bit of authenticity. And after that, the Kentucky Derby in America, the Montreal Slipper, the Antigua Guineas Royal Horse Races were all saw the use of this synthetic method, and its popularity grew. Other events were covered using this method, included the America's Cup, and it was this event that led to the banning of synthetic broadcasts, when there was a huge misunderstanding and all the horses drowned. So... The synthetic broadcasts, while very, very popular in their time, did tragically lead to the loss of an awful lot of horses. That's an extraordinary tale, Stephen, and typical of the sorts of things we're delving into. This was completely forgotten or, or covered up aspect of Australia's history. I think covered up more than more than forgotten. I think I think it caused such a, an outcry um, among the pub that they, they just had to stop you doing it. They couldn't, in, in all consciousness, keep re- recreating these sporting events. The, the toll on the horses was just too great. I can see what you mean. It's true 
uh, theatre of the air. I'm very interested in some of the personalities involved, the technician and the broadcaster, exactly how they manage the, the setup. Well, as I, as I mentioned, Robin Palloon, or nicknamed Rowdy, was an incredibly low-key commentator. He was almost inaudible. His boxing commentary was useless. Any commentary he provided in the sport where there was a crowd was just inaudible. I, what he was saying was insightful. Um, it was knowledgeable. He, he knew his sports back to front. But not many people actually heard him. He, he actually worked a fair bit with Kevin Taunt, who was the sound engineer. Kevin Taunt was a bit of a specialist in um, in volume. He, he was big into noise, and 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 this suited the, the, the barely audible commentary of Rowdy Palloon. Kevin Taunt went on to... He was always a bit of a backroom sort of a person. He he never saw the, the limelight, but he did he did work a lot on a lot of sporting activities. He also did quite a few um, television shows when television first took off in, in Australia. He was well-known around the traps, and even in his retirement in his nursing home, he took to actually recording all the events that happened in the nursing home and replayed them over the speakers, which drove the, the inhabitants crazy because they were just hearing recreations of things that they had just done or said, usually just a minute later. So technically he was a bit of a wizard, but yeah, the actual creative part, yep, that slipped by him a little. Yeah, well, well, not just the creativity, more the, the personality type. It's like technically fantastic, socially not so much. Yeah. Uh, but what we have done, what you have done, is you have given the synthetic broadcasts the sort of attention that they really deserve. Well done, Stephen. Thank you for that. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Given your, I know you have a deep and abiding interest in, in Australian history, Michael, so I'm looking forward to seeing what you have got for us today. It's been a couple of weeks of hitting the books, Stephen. I've been diving into all sorts of sources, and not just books. When, when I talk about hitting the books, it's more letters. I've got lots of letters, some old diaries that I've uncovered. Spend a bit of time out in the country uh, going to auctions and uh, some of these antiques, barns, and it's amazing what you can find. And I have found uh, some all sorts of information about a woman whose name was Tippy Presbyter. And so I'll present my findings now. That makes it sound really official, doesn't it? Present my findings. But that's the sort of stuff we're rolling out here. It does indeed. Right, so here we go. Uh, Tippy Presbyter was born in Brisbane, Queensland, daughter of Margaret and Don Presbyter. She was state under-13 triple jump champion. She chose not to pursue this calling after discovering an unfortunate allergy to sand. Tippy Presbyter attended the University of Queensland in 1980, but left after three months. She spent the next four years travelling up and down the east coast of Australia, laying the groundwork for her great achievements in the late 1980s. She punctuated her travels with sojourns in communes, shared households and colleges of advanced education. Slowly, she developed a calling. In 1985, while feeding pelicans on the beach at Meetung, Victoria, Tippi Presbyter had a revelation. As outlined in her brief autobiography, The Future and How to Get There, Tippi Presbyter suddenly realised that all the ills of the world were due to the fact that people were nervous about the future because they don't know what's going to happen, she wrote. They, they get anxious. The answer was simple, according to Tippy: Better fortune-telling. 
Tippy spent 1986 researching prophecy, fortune-telling and divination. She experimented with tarot, crystal balls, geomancy, numerology, astrology and the I Ching, eventually rejecting them all as unreliable. Unfazed, she decided to develop her own form of fortune-telling. Attracted by the romance of phrenology, the art of character divination by examination of bumps and shapes of the skull, Tippy invented sonic phrenology. This highly specialised technique involved identifying the bumps on a subject's skull and then wrapping them with a special wooden striker. The sounds thus made gave the shape of the subject's future, as interpreted by Tippy Presbyter herself. She called the sounds the music of the soul. Initially, subjects were always stunned by her predictions. Inevitably, they began by warning that the subject would experience cranial bruising in the next few days, but that was merely a launching pad for a detailed outline of the subject's romantic, financial and spiritual life to come. So detailed were her predictions that several were taped, written up and published as the first prospective biographies ever written. One such amounted to 400,000 words of intricately described events, right down to the serial numbers on yet-to-be-purchased electrical appliances. However, things began to unravel for Tippy when it was revealed that her predictions were incorrect. In 1981, one subject was told she'd win the Wimbledon Singles Championship, despite never having held a tennis racket in her life. Much heartened by this, the subject sold her house and all her belongings and flew to Britain, only to be knocked out in the semi-finals. Returning to Australia in a rage, she denounced Tippy to the media. The resulting scandal broke the fortune teller's spirit. Tippy Presbyter is currently living in Sydney and working as a stock market analyst. What an amazing life. An extraordinary woman, someone who had the courage of her convictions and she wasn't going to let fatal flaws in that uh, that courage let her down one one thought strikes i mean the underlying theory of, of her work seems sound you know if all the ills of the world can be attributed to anxious people and and they're anxious because they're, they're the future what well, I, I get that that she conducted some research into various forms of fortune telling and dismissed them as, as useless was any other research carried out by any other groups into I don't know, tea leaves or different types of tea leaves or... Now, that's a thought, Stephen. But, uh, and if I'm making notes here hurriedly, uh, because I, I've heard some hints and I've come across a few mentions, a little bit of gossip around the place, and that's something for me to follow up maybe for a future episode. Mm, one, other, one other question that I, I thought, how's she going at the stock market analysis? Well, that's another good question. Look, really, listening to your uh, piece on the synthetic broadcasts and just as we went through Tispy Presbyter, we really need to do a sort of where are they now follow-up sort of episode and try to track down some of these subjects, some of these events and see where where are they now, what's going on? Have they uh, turned their lives around? Have they become the success they thought? Because I have no idea. The, The sources that I used cut off quite suddenly when Tippy left the fortune telling circles. Maybe she was shunned by those who very much into this idea of prophecy. And when she went to the financial sphere, it was that uh, she was dead to them. Mm. Was it known if she was ever if she ever applied her practices 
to herself? Uh, no, she definitely didn't because she thought that striking herself on the head with uh, a wooden mallet was a little bit too much even for her. It might have had a, a detrimental effect on her abilities, I suppose. Well, <laughs> that almost sounds logical rather than just straight up stupid, but it could mm. be the way. Okay, Stephen. Now, I understand that you've been doing uh, some investigating about somebody who came to the shores a little later in life. Yes, indeed. A name that that was quite famous at the time, but it, but is, like so many of our subjects, has, has sort of passed into obscurity, um, Enzo Morelli. Enzo Morelli arrives as an assisted migrant in 1956. His only possessions were the clothes he stood up in, the, the clothes he laid down in, and the clothes he dined in. Strangely, he arrived again in 19, one year later in 1957, and he arrived again as Enrico Marcelli in 1958. In 1960, he arrived yet again as Gloria Enzorico. He put this down to a phase he was going through, although at the time it did allow him to smuggle in some what he called worthless pieces of glass, but were in fact diamonds and, and other assorted jewellery that was, that was worth an incredible amount of money, and there was some doubt about how he came to have it in his possession. Upon arrival in Australia, he, uh, he, he quickly moved to Melbourne where he took rooms at 114 Collins Street and these rooms were never found. He set up an import-export company. He became the toast of polite society and he also drew the interest of the tax office. All this happened incredibly quickly. It was like he arrived in Melbourne as a, as a whirlwind. He was strictly religious and a liar and a thief and so he was drawn to politics quicker than you can say it was a charitable donation. He was one of these people who was more a backroom operator. He worked behind the scenes. He wanted to serve his country. He never sought high office. He just wanted to help his constituents, or this is what he said. His constituents, two businessmen who claimed they didn't buy his vote as so much as just rent it for short periods, quickly disappeared. And the resulting trial from all this um, before Judge William Trout cleared him, cleared Enzo of, of any wrongdoing. He then, Enzo Morelli went, then went through a phase where he, he wanted to put the past behind him, embark on a new career and, and become a different person, I suppose. He chose a career in catering and entertainment in partnership with Sir William Trout, a recently retired judge. He opened a small nightclub called Enzo's at 116 Collins Street. The nightclub was decked out in the finest tapestries, luxurious appointments, and a careful use of mirrors that made the nightclub seem much bigger than it actually could have been. The top acts of the time all appeared at Enzo's, and, and Enzo looked after his acts. Even A lot of his acts were entertainers who were on the downward spiral of their careers, and they often suffered accidents in, in the twilight of their careers that always fell within the insurance claims that he'd taken out on them. This led Sun to believe that the series of fires that later engulfed Enzo's nightclub had more to do with insurance payouts than dodgy wiring. Enzo's reputation as the toast of Melbourne was ironic given he was burnt alive or more accurately dead in one of these fires. He is now looked upon as, as one of Australia's best entrepreneurs by those in the know. He brought joy to many and gainful employment to an awful lot of taxation experts, property developers and insurance brokers. The financial rewards he left this country are incalculable and mostly untraceable. 
Now, that's another fascinating figure from the past. From everything you've told us, he doesn't deserve to be forgotten. He doesn't deserve to be. I, I kind of think old Enzo would, would actually prefer to be forgotten, really. Yeah, let's, let's not quibble, Michael. He, some of his enterprises were a little bit on the seamy side. You know, the word dodgy comes to mind, but he was an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, sorry, and and he did take some shortcuts when he with the contracts that he signed, be that, be that property contracts, entertaining contracts, whatever. They're all a little bit suspicious, I suppose. The word "sus" occurred to me, but I thought I'd change it to "suspicious." But "sus" probably actually describes it better. Yeah, and and really, when it comes down to it, Michael, don't we all have those shady sides? So, Michael, you've got another interesting individual for for us to look at, um, I understand, Wally Grogan. Ah, yes, like I've been wading through the thickets of history and I've come across one of these figures who does not deserve to be forgotten. We are bringing them to light in order for them to have the fame that has been missing. So, what I've got here is Wally Grogan, who had the nickname, the moniker, the King of the Legumes. Wally Grogan, 1822 to 1903. So hold on to your hats. So this is an absolute cracker. Cousin of V.B. Grogan, the famous mountaineer and hypnotist, Wally Grogan was interested in horticulture from an early age after he accidentally composted his teddy bear. As a teenager, he enjoyed experimenting with mulches and ground covers, and his cactus garden was the talk of the neighbourhood after it accidentally foiled a burglar's attempt to break into the family's Geelong, Victoria, home. At the age of 11, Wally Grogan left school and went to work in a market garden near Drysdale, Victoria. Ahead of his time, five years later, he was actually sacked when he suggested growing Chinese gooseberries and marketing them under the name of koala fruit. A missed opportunity there. Dejected and unable to find work, Wally Grogan was on the verge of suicide, tying a huge Queensland blue pumpkin around his waist while standing on the bridge over the Barwon River. Fortuitously, he was halted by the arrival of the famed vegetable impresario and entrepreneur Thaddeus Hanshaw. Hanshaw immediately offered to buy the massive cucurbit and thus began a long and profitable partnership. Wally Grogan's visionary ideas for horticulture convinced Hanshaw to sponsor his research. In the amazing years that followed, Wally Grogan produced the pre-sliced cucumber, 1861, the skinless watermelon, 1862, the acid-free lemon, 1863, and the multi-award-winning ambrosia Brussels sprout, which took the best vegetable trophy at the Sydney Easter show. It was in 1865, urged on by Hanshaw, that Wally Grogan dedicated his life to the vegetables that earned him the title King of the Legumes. In this single year, he produced self-potting peas and titan beans, which grew on a dense, self-supporting tree-like vine, 20 metres tall. Each bean had to be harvested with an axe and was large enough to feed a family of three for a fortnight. He went on to develop the butterball pea, a delicate yellow pod containing a single pea the size of a grapefruit, and the doughnut bean, a novelty item really, a bean that grew in a unique ring shape, and of course the legendary overproof lentil, which was the result of several lawsuits from hoteliers apprehensive for their livelihood. 
It was in 1903 that Wally Grogan's genius was cut short. After a heated argument with Thaddeus Hanshaw over the direction of his research, it's rumoured that Hanshaw saw a huge profit to be made in developing vegetables in the likeness of the royal family, but Grogan saw it as beneath him. Wally Grogan died in a mysterious accident while attempting to cross his Gatling semi-automatic pea with his dynamite bean that had proved so useful in the mining industry. The explosion completely destroyed Wally Grogan's shed laboratory, seedbeds and notes. No trace of his body was ever found and no charges were ever laid against Thaddeus Hanshaw, who died penniless five years later after losing all his money in the disastrous Amazing World of Tropical Fruit exhibition of 1908. Sadly, none of Wally Grogan's unique creations appear to have survived to the present day. Perhaps in some out-of-the-way abandoned farmstead, in an overgrown vegetable patch, there's still a strange plant producing giant, sweet-tasting peas with no one to enjoy them. Goodness, now, these are the types of people we need here today. I see this as part, part this is our role, really, in some ways, to try to bring these people uh, the fame and the credit that they really deserve. History is wonderful, but it does cover up lots of stuff. So you could argue that Grogan's fruit and vegetable research would the precursor of today's practice of genetically modifying foodstuffs. Exactly. He was just doing it without some of the technology available today. Uh, and he just had an insight. He could sense things. I think he, he had almost an intuitive approach, as well as a fairly methodical and practical one. Put them together and the results were remarkable. So a lot of these fruits and vegetables were, were capable of producing viable seeds. Indeed. And I'm sure that there was some method of grafting and all of that business that uh, is a little bit beyond me, but I'm sure they could have spread right across Australia and right across the world. And indeed, it could have anticipated the Green Revolution by so many, many decades. Mm, although, of course, it would be very difficult to get some of those seeds into those little paper bags that you buy seeds in. That is Now, I hadn't thought of that, but that's an excellent point. So in some sense, he was intensely practical. In others, uh, well, perhaps a little impractical. So, uh, Michael, I know that you've been hard at work researching and delving into the books. Well, how about just telling us what you've got for us this week? Stephen, I focused on a person, a person who's been overlooked in Australian history, and I really think it's my duty to bring this fascinating figure to the attention of the public. So I'm going to dive straight into that, if, if it's OK. Today, so I've brought you Alonzo Mirabilis, uh, 1830 to 1899. Alonzo Mirabilis, and I'm reading from my notes here, so just bear with me. Uh, he was an amateur geologist and surveyor. He relished his sobriquet of Australia's unluckiest explorer, much preferring it to the alternative, much bandied about in the public houses, of Australia's most boneheaded explorer. Mirabilis earned his nicknames by way of a spectacular series of expeditions into inland Australia. Each one of these expeditions managed to chart thousands of square miles of previously charted wilderness, and he went on to name hundreds of already named geographic features, and he meticulously remapped routes that have been well known for decades. It was Alonzo Mirabilis's profound sense of self 
that led him to these exploits. This is what I've found. He refused to listen to second-hand tales of discovery and he eschewed any map not made by his own hand. The latter tendency reportedly began after a traumatic incident as a child involving a street directory, a door-to-door salesman and a tin of golden syrup. Coming into a comfortable inheritance at the age of 22, Alonso Mirabilis began his first great expedition, sailing a whaleboat from Sydney along the east coast of Australia. He eventually found Bass Strait, thereby replicating the journey of Bass and Flinders some 55 years earlier. Returning to Sydney six months later, he was disappointed at the lack of reaction to his discovery. Nettled by this, he immediately set off on a journey westwards from Sydney, seeking to find a way across the Blue Mountains. He returned home five months later, claiming that such a route would never be found. Alonso Mirabilis retired from exploring due to the public ridicule following this statement, and he began a life as a recluse. Over a decade of pursuing advanced beekeeping and wallpaper hanging, Alonzo Mirabilis began to feel restless. In 1887, he planned his most ambitious journey, a crossing of the continent from south to north. He blocked his ears to those who tried to tell the stories of Burke and Wills and the journeys of John McDool Stewart, setting off in January 1888. Again, he remained deaf to those who suggested that he wait until the cooler winter months, for, as he put it, I enjoy a bit of sun. Riding a bicycle and accompanied only by his trusty Great Dane Kingsley, Alonso Mirabilis reached Swan Hill, Victoria, on the Murray River, then vanished into the wilderness. For years it was assumed he perished almost immediately, but in 1923 a party of tin miners near Inverell, New South Wales, found a lightning-struck gum tree with the words, Under Me, carved into the trunk. Excavating under its roots, they discovered a battered golden syrup tin and a sketchy journal crammed inside. It was the last words of Alonso Mirabilis. In this journal, he told of the heartbreak of puncture after puncture and of finally being thrown while attempting a wheel stand on a creek bank, thanks to a faulty seat bracket. The journal revealed how Mirabilis sent Kingsley, the Great Dane, for help and waited and waited and waited. A skeleton was found nearby bearing the tooth marks of a large carnivore, much larger than the few dingoes sighted in this area. A sad end for an explorer, but maybe a fitting one. Maybe a fitting one, Michael, but, but yes, terribly downbeat and sad. I couldn't help wondering while you, while you were reading that, that he actually sounded incredibly familiar. And I wonder if, if perhaps some of his, his map making and, and, and some of his, his, his exploits have, have made it into popular culture in, in, in some manner. Surely some of his maps were published at some stage. They, they were published, but only to a small circle of friends. Uh, and because he, he felt he couldn't trust the public with uh, his writings. He was, uh, he was a little bit secretive like that. While seeking fame on the one hand for his ridiculous journeys, he did have this, uh, he was backwards in coming forward sometimes. An odd man, but interesting. He's very much the loner. Yeah, I, I think that was another one of his major downfalls. Instead of going with a well-prepared party, he did tend to set off solo, Not again, not wanting to share the fame that he was sure was going to come to him. And the, the golden syrup tin, why, are they particularly noted for their longevity when, when buried? Or, I mean, are they, are they ideal as a, a message keeper? Or Look, I, I'm sure there are golden syrup tins buried 
right across this wide brown continent of ours just waiting to be discovered. But I think it was more or less one of the things that that he had at hand, that uh, it, it's got a top, it's, it opens up, he could stuff stuff into it and he could bury it, feeling that it had some sense of permanence. Once again, he was sadly mistaken. Mm, if just because this particular area uh, interests me, advanced beekeeping, how is, how is that actually different from beekeeping? Yeah, because he only kept what he called advanced bees. And I have no idea how he managed to look at two bees and say, yes, you're an ordinary standard bee. Yes, you are an advanced bee. But he was convinced he could. I think he felt himself a little bit of a bee whisperer, if you like. Fair enough. But obviously that, that wasn't his, his major area of concern. It, it, it was obviously much more concerned with the, the world around him geographically. I well, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. As I said. Well, at least the late Middle Ages man, one or the other. And he was just capable of so many things. I think it was a brave new world in some ways at that time. And no no remains were found of Kingsley? Was it Kingsley, the, the, the Great Dane? <laughs> Mm, no, although there there were rumours of rumours of packs of uh, hybrid Great Dane dingoes roaming around the Swan Hill area for some decades since. I only go on evidence, Stephen, not not anecdotes and rumours, but I set a high standard. And as our listeners will hear over the next episodes, we go back to the primary and secondary sources. We look for evidence to present these marvellous tales that you may have missed when you're in school. Now, Stephen, I understand you're actually out in the wilds of West Gippsland. Yes, that's right, Michael. One thing I want to know, uh, why are you there? Why am I here? Well, yeah. Well, why why are any of us here, Michael? I mean, it's one of the big questions. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand. Now, what I mean is, why are you there in the wilds of West Gippsland specifically? Oh, I see. Sorry. Um, well, Michael, I've been doing some more research, as one does, and I discovered that here, near this very spot, is the site of the world's tallest tree. Really? You astonish me. The world's tallest tree here in Australia? Oh, it must be stunning. Well, let me clarify here a bit, Michael. I'm standing near the site of the world's tallest tree. It isn't actually here anymore. Okay, well, that's actually a little bit less impressive, I have to say, Stephen. Well, you say that, Michael, but let me tell you, standing here, it's easy to imagine this tree rising majestically upwards from a spot quite near here. And I think you can get a feel for the sheer power of such a tree just by standing here, where it once stood, its vast bulk stretching heavenward. Yeah, paint the picture for me, Stephen. Let's start off. How tall was it? Oh, immensely tall, Michael. Really, really big. Huge colossal, enormous, gigantic, massive, immense, extensive and vast. Words probably don't do it justice. See that tree over there, the big one? I'll point my phone at it um, so you can get some sort of idea. But just over there, it's really big. Well, this other one was bigger. I know. Impressive, isn't it? Or at least it was. Humongous it was. Ginormous. Really big. Now I'm back on the impressive bandwagon there, Steve. What what sort of tree was it? Well, it was really tall. That's kind of the point. I understand that. But what type? 
we're talking genus, species, that sort of thing. Oh, um, ooh, um, the gum tree, maybe. Okay, all right. So, what happened to it? Cut down for wood chips, Michael. All right. That strikes me as more than a little bit sad. Yeah, I can I can see where you're coming from, but there is some good news. The tree also holds the record for the most wood chips from one source. So, you know, it, it's not all bad news. As I say, there is some good news in mixed in amongst it. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders... Get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?